The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, and I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is cardiologist Barbara Roberts, MD, Associate Clinical Professor at the Albert Medical School of Brown University, Director of the Women's Cardiac Center at the Miriam Hospital in Rhode Island, and she also serves on the Women's Day Heart Health Advisory Board. She's authored many articles, uh, which has detailed her research into cholesterol-lowering drugs. So today... We're going to be talking about her new book, and the title of the new book is The Truth About Statins, Risks, and Alternatives to Cholesterol-Lowering Drugs. Um, Her book has been described as the other side of the statin story, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, the other side of the statin story. Welcome to the show, Dr. Roberts. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. Okay, let's just begin with with your, your response to this new, and you and I are talking about that right before we went on the show, the new cholesterol guidelines recently uh, published by the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, which have suggested millions of healthy Americans should start taking statins. Uh, I think that's a good intro to what we're going to be talking about today. So your response. (laughs) My response is that these new guidelines are a travesty. An absolute travesty. I was quoted in the British Medical Journal last week uh, describing these new guidelines as a big kiss to big pharma. According to these new guidelines, no matter how healthy you are, if you have totally normal cholesterol and totally normal blood pressure and are a non-smoker, these new guidelines suggest statin therapy, so-called therapy, For every white male over the age of 62, every African-American male over the age of 65, every white female over the age of 70, and every black female over the age of 69. This despite the fact that in the studies that have shown, uh, that have looked at uh, prevention, using statins as a preventive measure in healthy people, without cardiovascular disease, the risk was only on the order of about 1% in men, and it was zero in women. No primary prevention trial. That is a trial in healthy people at high risk for heart disease. None of those trials has ever shown that you lower a woman's risk of heart attack or dying of heart disease. In the meantime, all of these people are exposed to the very real uh, risk of side effects from statins, including a risk of diabetes. Yeah, and I want to get into the damage. side effects, but before we get into the side effects, I, I don't want to leave this whole, this whole, I call it a proclamation that Big Pharma has gotten away with. How do we get to this point? How can you, you know, I mean, what's the responsibility to the American people, especially in terms, let's say, the American, how did the, the I mean, you have these, 
I call them heavy hitters, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology. What do they get from this? I mean, like if you take... They get lots and lots of money. They get millions of dollars from big pharmaceutical companies, from medical device companies. In the case of the American Heart Association, they get millions of dollars from big food companies. They sell the rights to have their heart check on more than 800 foods. And you know what some of these foods include? Things like boar's head roasted ham, all natural ham, which is very high in sodium. And we know from a study that looked at over a million people who were in 1,600 other studies that just consuming one 8-ounce daily serving of processed meat raises your risk of diabetes by 19% and of heart disease by 42%. Meanwhile, the American Heart Association is saying that over 800 of of foods, many of which not only are not heart healthy, but are actually heart dangerous, are okay for you to eat. Yeah, I look at some of those cereal things. I mean, just to give another example, when I go to buy cereal, and I actually don't buy it anymore, at least not in the grocery store or in the supermarket, because they have those heart healthy things, and I'm looking at the... Yeah, first of all, I'm looking at the ingredients, which has more chemicals in it than anything, right. besides, as you say, the sodium, the, the syrup, the sugar. Um, and I've always wondered, like, how can they put heart healthy on, these, on, these, on the cereal? But what about the individual physician? What are they getting out of it? Because as I started to tell you before we got on the show, I mean, my cardiologist, who I see once a year, um, it has also been for the past at least 10 years telling me that I need to be on statins, and I keep asking, well, why? What are the studies that show that I would be a candidate for it? And he, he never really can, but keeps on, and you know, you, even though I know, and I'm a, I, an informed consumer, um, that I shouldn't be doing this, and I don't, it's always that nagging, you know, like, should I be? I mean, am I going to have a heart attack tomorrow? I haven't had one yet, but uh, so I know well, he has a certain, yeah, go ahead. You know, particularly primary care doctors are so busy that they don't have the time that I'm lucky enough to have to read these studies very, very carefully. But let's get back to these studies for a moment. I started to say that these primary care doctors get most of their drug information from drug reps. The drug reps bring lunch, to, and so their staff gets free lunch. The, the drug companies sponsor these dinners in nice restaurants where they have one of their uh, experts talk to them about the benefit of the drug. And what they do, they're very clever. They give the relative risk reduction instead of the absolute risk reduction when they're talking about the benefits of statins. And I'll give you an example. And this is for lay people, so make this it is, Yeah, this is for lay people. Simple. They do these trials where they gather a group of people that are pretty similar uh, in the case of statins and healthy people, they gather uh, people who are at high risk for heart disease but haven't been diagnosed with heart disease yet, and they treat half with statin and half with a dummy pill. Now, what you might see is that and they follow them for like two to five years, and they count up the number of heart attacks in the group on statins and the number of heart attacks in the group on placebo. And what you often see in, in some primary prevention trials is that 2% of the people on placebo have a heart attack and 1% of people on statins have a heart attack. So 2 minus 1 is 1%, right? You've lowered the risk 1%, but that's the absolute risk reduction. They never tell you that. They tell you the relative risk reduction, which is 50%, because if 
2% of people on a placebo had an event and 1% of people on statin had a prevent, you've lowered that risk. 2 minus 1 is 1 over 2, 50%. So you're looking at relative risk reductions. You're not looking at absolute risk reductions. And this applies to both doctors and lay people. And, and some doctors don't remember enough statistics to tell the difference. But there's a very important number called the number needed to treat. And the number needed to treat is one divided by the absolute risk reduction. For, so for the example I just gave, you would have to treat 100 people for two to five years to prevent one event. In the meantime, 99% of those people will have no benefit and 100% of them will be exposed to the possible risks and side effects. Uh, you know, as I'm listening to you, I just find it mind-boggling that they, that they, the the propaganda that big pharma is able to, um, I guess, to, to 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 create in and to get people to actually buy into this um, is kind of mind-boggling. Because you were talking, you you just said, you know, that doctors don't have time to get the information to, on the research. But I'm just a layperson, and I've gone online over the past few years, and and the information is out there. I think the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, uh, what is it, Lancet, the, which is the mm-hmm. British medical journal, yep. they've all espoused at one time or another exactly what you're saying. And it's not that difficult to get that information. Right. It, this is a hugely controversial issue, but what I want to point out is there are huge conflicts of interest. More than half of the people who wrote these newest guidelines have accepted money from big pharmaceutical firms. The American Heart Association gets millions and millions of dollars in donations from pharmaceutical companies, in addition to all the money they get for their heart check program. I think that the American Heart Association has become little more than the propaganda arm of big pharma and big food, and I think it's a disgrace. So what do we do about it? What can we do about it? I mean, aside, obviously, you wrote this book, and this book is for us, for lay people. Um, so, I mean, that's one way of and being on, you know, talking to the media. But is it, is it kind of a losing battle? Well, I think that it's so important for people to become educated, you talk about the American Heart Association, if you, if you donate to the American Heart Association, send them a letter and say, I'm not going to donate to you until you stop taking money for promoting drugs, I'm sorry, promoting foods that increase risk of heart disease. Simple, and, but a great suggestion. I mean, something that all of us can do. You're absolutely right. Yes. Um, but do we still have, you know, you talk about, how, you know, we're talking about billions of dollars a year that are at stake, and you've described it certainly in some of the ways. I, you know, I feel like it's, I mean, it's really difficult to overcome that. And I, another thing is, I always feel that any kind of a, med, a drug or a medication that's prescribed for everybody, there has to be something inherently wrong with it, because it's not really, you know, if you have a, a thyroid condition, they don't give thyroid medication to the whole world just to exactly. prevent. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, but, and the sad thing is, we have a better alternative that has no risks attached to it. We know from very good trials in both people who survived a heart attack and healthy people that a plant-based diet modeled on the Mediterranean diet lowers your risk more than any statin and has no adverse effects. 
Do you think people don't want to do that? Let's take the, the get away from the doctors and the and big pharma, but just the consumer. It's they it, they'd rather take a pill. I mean, there's that that you know that some kind of people build- would rather take a pill. But I think if they knew that, for example, in the case of statins, in other words, if if you're talking to a patient who doesn't have diabetes, hasn't had a prior uh, heart attack or stroke, and you know, some I see this all the time. People come to me because their primary care doctors want them to take a statin, and they come to me for a second opinion. If those people know that 98% of them will see no benefit whatsoever, maybe 1.6% will be spared a heart attack, and less than a half a percent will be spared a stroke, but there'll be no difference in overall mortality. At the same time, 2% of these people treated with statins will develop diabetes, and that number is even higher in women, and 10% will have muscle damage. I became clued into muscle damage in the case of my own husband. We went on a trip to Italy in the mid-1990s, and he was overdosing on prosciutto di parma every night. And he came home and had his <laughs> primary care checkup, and his cholesterol was over 300, and his primary care doctor freaked out and put him on a statin. And within a matter of days, he had terrible muscle pain all over his body. And my husband loved to run and lift weights. He couldn't do it. Over the next few years, he was tried on every statin in, on the market, and every one of them caused him to have crippling muscle pain, even though his muscle enzymes never increased. So he stopped statins many years ago, and we adhere to the Mediterranean diet in our house. And Dr. Roberts, what you're talking about when you say muscle pain, well, your heart is a muscle too, so does that include your heart muscle? I've always wondered, does that mean your heart <laughs> muscle is also going to be getting weaker, or are there some kind of a strain on it? Because it's not... It, there have been studies that showed that statins increase heart muscle stiffness. And increased heart muscle stiffness is the most common underlying cause of congestive heart failure. It's called diastolic dysfunction, heart failure. And there are studies that show that statins increase diastolic dysfunction. There are studies that show that statins decrease insulin sensitivity. Most of the diabetes we see is not due to a lack of insulin. It's due to your body's becoming resistant to the insulin it already makes. And this, again, is directly related to diet and the horrible diet most Americans consume, full of sugar and processed grains and trans fats. So there, and we know also uh, that you can have muscle damage. These are studies that looked at people who had muscle pain on statins, but their CK enzymes didn't elevate. And even though their CK enzymes didn't elevate, muscle biopsies showed evidence of damage. Yeah, and that's scary. I mean, and of course they don't. I have never had a physician ever tell me that. I mean, they, and they, you know, in, or particularly the one I'm talking about in terms of prescribing a, a statin. What about cholesterol? Is this a myth? I mean, cholesterol, they associate cholesterol, high cholesterol, just that alone with um, heart attacks and yeah. strokes. Okay. That, that, but cholesterol is a they, very weak risk. Yeah, okay. There were studies, that to us. There were studies, uh, there was a famous study done back in the 1950s by a man named Ansel Keys. It was called the Seven Countries Study. And he correlated a dietary intake of saturated fats with total cholesterol level, and then he correlated it with the likelihood of dying of heart disease. And I have this, the, the graphs from his original 
papers, and what's so interesting is that at equivalent levels of cholesterol, no matter how high the cholesterol was, men in Crete had only a quarter of the risk of dying of heart disease as men in the United States with the identical high cholesterol. So it's not all about the cholesterol. It turns out that LDL, the so-called bad cholesterol, if you have trouble remembering, remember L stands for lousy, but LDL cholesterol is the weakest predictor of your risk of dying of heart disease of all the lipids. It's far more risky, particularly if you're a woman, if you have high triglycerides, which go up when you eat processed carbohydrates and sweets, and low levels of the good cholesterol, the HDL. Remember, H stands for healthy. Those are far more potent risk factors for developing heart disease, high triglycerides, low HDL, than LDL. I was involved in a study uh, in a program called the Lipid um, Research Clinics Program when I was a young doctor back at the NIH in the early 70s. And one of the studies we sponsored was one that followed over 2,400 men and over 2,000 women between the ages of 40 and 64 who were healthy. We followed them for an average of 19 years. And everybody had their total cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol, their HDL cholesterol, and a number called your non-HDL cholesterol, which is just your cholesterol minus your HDL. And in women, even at LDL levels over 190, which is where these new guidelines say, even if you're healthy, you should be on a statin. Even in women with LDLs over 90, there was no significant increase in your risk of dying of cardiovascular disease. This is information. I, I, I'm listening to you. I mean, it's mind-boggling because this is information. I mean, the, as you say, triglycerides are more important for women. I've also found that online. But all this information, for some, the, the average person is not aware of it. And I guess, I mean, I just, I, and it's... it's well, it's all in my book, the, Catherine. Yes, about I, I'm going to mention, yes, that we're talking to Dr. Barbara Robertson. Her book is The Truth About Statins, which you can buy online, bookstores everywhere, Risk and alternatives to cholesterol-lowering drugs. So we're just touching on a few of the topics that you have in the book, but um, and we can go on and on. But it's, um, I, I think one of the other things that you also touched on, I mean, there are alternatives to Mediterranean diet and exercise. Exactly. Um, avoiding smoking and even avoiding secondhand smoke. If you have high blood pressure, you know, going again on a zero processed food diet, a plant-based diet, and if that isn't sufficient, getting on medication to lower your cholesterol, uh, regular exercise, not becoming obese. These are all far more important than just treating a number. I, I wanted to get back to statins for a minute, though, because, as I said, their benefits are vastly exaggerated. And even the most fervid statin apologist admits that anywhere from 60 to 80% of cardiac events are not prevented by statins. Now, if you had a vaccine, say vaccine X, that didn't prevent infection Y, 60 to 80 percent of the time and had about a 25 percent risk of serious side effects. How many people do you think would take that vaccine? Yeah, nobody. Nobody in their right mind. No, especially if it were presented like that accurately, you'd say, well, why would I do that? No. Exactly. Plus the cost of administering, you know, all that. I mean, you know, besides the, you know, the negative effects of the vaccine and on and on, nobody would do that. Correct. What about also cholesterol? And our brains. 
This is another fact. We need cholesterol Crucial. in our body, don't we? Doesn't it we, help us to we, function, especially as we're aging? I think I need all the cholesterol I can get in my exactly. brain. Exactly. And we know in older people, people with very low cholesterol, that's, that correlates with a higher risk of death than older people with high cholesterol. Cholesterol is integral to every cell in your body. Every one of our cells is surrounded by something called the cell membrane. Cholesterol is a very important component of the cell membrane. Cholesterol is used to make bile acids, which help us digest our food. Cholesterol is important in the manufacture of vitamin D by our bodies. Cholesterol is used in the manufacture of many hormones, including our reproductive hormones. 25% of the cholesterol in our bodies is found in our brain. Cholesterol is absolutely important for the nerve sheath, which surround our nerves and and help in the propagation of nerve impulses. We know that people who have been on statins for more than two years, have a 26-fold increase in their risk of developing a condition called polyneuropathy, where multiple nerves in the body are affected. And I've seen people wind up in bed, unable to walk from statins, damaging their nerves and or their muscles. And the, the, the damage is not always reversible. I am in contact with many people who formed a Yahoo group called Stop Our Statins, and some of those stories are absolutely heartbreaking. People who were healthy and vigorous, climbing mountains, running races, put on statins by their physicians who developed horrible, horrible, the worst kind of muscle damage, which we call rhabdomyolysis, where the CK enzyme, instead of being under 200, may be over 30,000. And even if the drug is stopped immediately, some of those people have gone on for months and years afterwards to have high, high elevations of their CPK enzyme. And some of them actually develop an autoimmune disease where they attack their own muscles. All right, well, then that, this is my next question. What do you think of primary care physicians and or cardiologists who, provide, who, who recommend statins for people 85 or even 90 or over? Uh, well, obviously, they're healthy. They've lived to be 85 or 90 uh, without taking statins, uh, but starting at, let's say, age 90. I have a friend whose mother was just prescribed statins at age 90. And of course I she think that's every- abominable. It's 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 mind-boggling. You know, my oldest patient is 104 and a half. Uh, she'll be quick to tell you. And in her mid-90s, for reasons that escaped me, her primary care doctor checked her cholesterol, and her bad cholesterol was 165. And she said, "You have to go on a statin." And the patient called me very upset, and I said, "Absolutely not. You do not need a statin." Well, it's almost 10 years later. Uh, she still has. I presume high cholesterol, I've never (laughs) checked it, and she's still healthy and doesn't have heart disease. I just saw a patient last week in my office, 80-year-old woman. Her doctor's been trying to to put her on statins for years. Her bad cholesterol, her bad cholesterol, not her total, her bad cholesterol is 200. Her total is over 300. She's never been on a statin. She doesn't have heart disease. So we have... Almost no evidence, although, you know, there have been articles coming out and even the new guidelines say that, you know, there's benefit to treating 
the elderly with statins because the elderly have the highest absolute risk of cardiovascular disease. But I like but wait to a say, minute. I mean, can we backtrack? I mean, if you're a hundred, what's your right? What, right. How, yeah. I mean, are you talk, are you, I mean, you've already lived past the, the date at which you were supposed to die, right. and or not supposed to die, but you know the mortality rate, mm-hmm. whatever it is, eighty-seven mm-hmm. for women or. Anyway, so like, what are we talking about? Like, you're you've already proven that whatever you're doing is is, is working. Right, yeah, is working. So right. why, it doesn't even ma- it doesn't make sense. It only makes sense to big pharmaceutical companies that make more money. Yeah, and and when they look at these trials, I want to get back to the trials for a minute because we have a saying in medicine: if you torture the data long enough, it will confess to anything. Yeah, well, that makes but sense. But the big problem, the big problem with these trials that they're citing to back up their scientific evidence, were almost uniformly bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies that make the drugs that's being make the drug that are being studied. Now, how much more clear of a conflict of interest can you get? And we know from studies that have looked at industry-sponsored trials and non-industry-sponsored trials, trials that industry sponsored trials are four times more likely to have a quote-unquote positive outcome than non-industry-sponsored trials. That's not a surprise. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or if you are surprised, then you're a little naive. Exactly. All right, so we have a few minutes left, Dr. Roberts. Give Mm -hmm. us, what do you think is going to happen with all this? I mean, is is Big Pharma, are we going to just continue with this kind of prescribing this medication that is really just benefits well, I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. Uh, they're investigating new classes of drugs that will drop LDL cholesterol even lower. And the minute they get approved, they're going to do a complete turnaround and say, we were wrong about statins. They're very dangerous. Stop your statin and try this new drug instead. Is there a precedent for that, you know, with other medications that they found? I'm thinking of HRT. I'm thinking of the drug Fosamax for osteoporosis. Sure. Yeah. You know, they, I, think, I think with these guidelines, um, the AHA and their partners in Big Pharma have overreached themselves. They have generated so much criticism and so much disbelief that I think they're going to have to redo these guidelines and hopefully hopefully get rid of this ridiculous calculator that even they admit overestimates risk in healthy people anywhere from 75 to 150% of the time. They said, oh, yes, we know that, but we're going to stand by it. This calculator underestimated the general public now. I mean, we have a lot more access. You're talking about being aware. One has to be aware. Uh, and we get more information because of the Internet and because of, well, books like yours, obviously, and books like yours that are available to the public um, that maybe they've taken a step towards underestimating what we'll respond to, that maybe we're going to take a look at this, that we are being, you know, taken advantage of. Um. I think they did underestimate uh, the outcry that would occur with these guidelines. So what else can we do? Is there anything else? I mean, that the because really, I think it's really. You mentioned a website. It said stop something, and I missed it because we went on to talk Stopped about something. Stop our statins. It's a Yahoo group, and if you've had a bad reaction to statins, I would urge you to join this group. It's uh, stopped underline our underline statins at Yahoo groups. Um, I can't remember whether it's .net or .com, uh, but. 
if you just Google Stop Our Statins Yahoo Groups, it'll take you to the site. They also have a Facebook page that you can apply to join. And my book has a Facebook page. If you just uh, go to your Facebook page and plug in The Truth About Statins, it will take you to my Facebook page where on an almost daily basis I post articles of interest about statins or other health-related uh, subjects and about the, the crimes of big pharma. Oh, well, Dr. Roberts, that's Dr. Barbara Roberts, The Truth About Statins. And uh, I think you, I have the, you have another fan because that's exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, <laughs> go to your so Facebook much, page and also stop our statins and your book, The Truth About Statins, which is uh, Risks and Alternatives to Cholesterol-Lowering Drugs. Great talking to you today. Thank you so much, Catherine. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, uh, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us support. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Giselle Alicia Extravaganza, quite a name. Giselle is a successful high fashion model, actress, painter, event producer, legendary ballroom personality, and transgender activist. She was also featured in the documentary Lost in the Crowd by Susie Graff. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Giselle Alicia Extravaganza, what do I call you? Um, you can just call me Giselle. It's fine. <laughs> okay, Giselle. Well, the topic yeah. today is transgendered, right? Um, it's kind of like a broad topic, and, uh, but 
really important in the sense that today, I guess, transgendered, um, you know, in light of all the LBGT successes in terms of, of uh, same-sex marriage being passed in many states, et cetera, and uh, all the legal ramifications for that. Now what's literally coming out is what about transgendered people? Where do they fit in? Who are they? Um, so I guess, you know, I think much of the public, and, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, Giselle, are really kind of in the dark about what, does, what, is, what is the definition of transgendered. Well, yeah, a lot of people are in the dark um, when it comes to transgendered people because there's not so many of us, and it's not such a it's not such a common um, thing to be brought up. So I think that's where people are in the dark. That's why the main reason that people are in the dark, including even gay men and gay women. Yeah, and that is so true because a lot of my some of my best friends are gay men and women, and they'll say, you know, I I'm not exactly sure, which is interesting because you know the expectation is, well, you're part of the LBGT community, you would know, but they're as much in the dark as straight people. <laughs> yes, yes, that is very true. I mean, it's because um, you know, as I said, um, we're we're a very we're, we're the minority in the minority. Yeah. Are you the minority, or do you not know? Maybe people haven't come out, like you know, because you may not be as much in the minority as you think. Do you know? Yeah, I think that's what that's what, that's also an issue that a lot of uh, transgendered women and and transgendered men don't want to come out to the public as transgendered because that's one of the reasons they became transgendered is to live a life as a female and to live a life as a male and to live a normal life and not to be judged. So there okay. are a lot of transgendered people that are still in the dark. Well, you're a transgendered person. Yes, maybe I'm transgendered. Tell you. Go ahead. Yes, I'm a transgendered woman, yeah. Okay. But just in terms of, maybe it's easiest to understand because it's your story. Let's hear your story. Um, but first, do you think I should give a definition or the definition that I found in the American Psychological Association? They had a whole page on, I was looking it up before we are doing the show, like transgendered. And I'm a social worker, so I'm a professional. I should know, right? Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, sometimes uh, social workers don't know because they, they get their um, definitions through um, exactly what you said and sometimes they're not uh, they're not correct or a lot of us don't agree with the definition but you right, can let read me give it you I'll throw out a definition right. tell me whether you agree or not or whether you think it's okay. accurate uh, this is the American Psychological Association this was their page this was on the net what does transgender mean transgender is an umbrella term for persons whose gender identity gender expression or behavior does not conform to that typically associated with the sex to which they were assigned at birth Make sense or not? To me, that that could make sense. Yes, that okay. makes sense. But you know, I I am I'm only speaking for myself. Okay. I'm pretty I'm pretty easy and open about my gender, and I'm pretty you know comfortable with it. Other people are not, so I I would agree with that. You know, but other other people might not. I actually do agree with that. All right. So we've kind of set up a definition of what transgender means, but. Now, let's talk about your own, you know, how old are you? Me, I'm 34. Okay, 34, so relatively young. Um, <laughs> at what, yeah. When did you realize or feel that you were 
different or you felt different in your body or what how did you know how did that evolve in terms of of you know of your you're only 34 years old when did you begin to feel well you know maybe I'm there's something different happening with me in terms of how I feel about myself my body my sexuality right well I always felt different as a child growing up but um it was not really I I couldn't really tell you that I, I wanted to be, a, a, I mean, I did dress up in, like, women's clothing, so I did want to be a female. I felt like that. But I was also comfortable being um, a boy. So I, for me, it was a very different and, and weird situation because I've spoken to a couple of my transgender friends and their experience was totally different. I was actually comfortable. But when I decided to um, make my change was when I was... Uh, 15 years old, when I actually um, knew that I found out that I could actually do that when I saw a transgendered live, a, a transgendered woman live for myself. And then I said, wait a minute, I didn't even, I didn't even think that was possible. And as soon as I saw the transgendered woman, I knew that's what I wanted to do because I saw a really beautiful form of art in it. I don't know what it was, but it was just, as soon as I laid my eyes, I said, that's that's me. I have to do it. And then I felt so uncomfortable walking down the street as the older, as, as a boy that it was just, it became unbearable and I just needed to do it and I just did it. And so what you say, uh, you just did it and you were uh, 15 yeah. years old. So how does a 15 year old just do it? I mean, like what was your family situation? Because 15 year olds aren't allowed to go out and drink if they, <laughs> so let alone you're saying, wow, I, you know, this is what I want to do. I want to be a woman. It couldn't, I'm assuming it can't happen that easily. Well, I actually started doing it when I was uh, 17. I started dressing up at the age of 15 and then at the age of 17, I decided to do it. And my mother kind of had an idea, I guess, that I was going to change or she probably thought it was just like a hobby that I was doing, but she 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 took it hard. It was hard, but my mother would never kick me out into the streets, and my family is not like that. My family was never very heavily religious. Um, they were very open, and my mother had gay friends, and my sisters had gay friends, so it wasn't like this unaccepting environment that I, I was gr- uh, grown up in. Um, so I don't know. What, I mean, I just decided to do it because I'm just... I'm, I'm, that's, that was just part of my character, even at well, 17 years of age. Well, at and 17, it, okay, I mean, because and I just want to go back a little, because you mentioned dressing up in women's clothes, and I don't want to get confused about, because there are many men who are what they call cross-dressers, but they don't, but they don't want, but they see themselves as, I guess, identify with the male gender and sexually and have girlfriends or partners or wives or whatever. Well, yeah, they, that's a totally different ballpark. Right, that's like and the, I want to declare, right. Yeah, that's, that's just a male cross-dressing. Cross-dressing is exactly like how you just explained it. Is, is It could be a man that has a wife and then wants to just do it for work or whatever, and then there's cross-dressers that do it for whatever other reasons, but a transgendered person is someone who lives and identifies themselves as a woman and then starts their entire life living as a woman as far as taking hormones, the hormone therapy, letting your hair grow, 
your entire life changes because this is what you identify as a cross-dresser changes into a man the next day or into whatever the person identifies themselves as. So there's a really big distinction there. Cross-dresser is still a gay male. Now, a transgendered person has had been a gay male, but then changes their gender by taking hormones and by their identity and whatever they feel that they were born and meant to be and the way you look and the physicality is a very complex kind of world, but it is a very different kind of world because any, any, any man can dress up in drag and call themselves a cross-dresser, but it's the thing of living your life as a, as a female and identifying yourself as a female and then taking the hormones to do it and then doing the surgeries or whatever it is that you're, you do. Some people don't even do the surgeries. Oh, all right. Well, so the, the distinction is the hormones and the, and, the, and the identity and identifying yourself as a transgendered person and the whole physical appearance. Right, so there are lots of issues here besides your own personal. Obviously, as you start taking these hormones, what are the changes? Because I'm always interested, just from a... Um, you know, from the perspective of, you know, you have this testosterone and now you're, I assume, taking estrogen um, amongst other things. But then yeah. what changes, you know, because what's the difference between, I mean, you can really identify having had the testosterone and then at age 17 uh, taking female hormones, what kinds of emotional changes occur, first of all, even not just physical, but like emotional yeah, well, you, you go through a lot of emotional changes. You go through a lot of mood swings. You go through a lot of, you know, just people, people themselves make you go through a whole bunch of different emotions just by, because of the way they treat you. They might treat you a different way. Your family might treat you a different way. I was lucky to have a very, you know, my family was supportive. Nobody bothered me. Actually, I demanded it. But um, I, I had it naturally with my family, but yeah, you go through a lot of emotional changes. You go through, um, you know, it's not only that with uh, relationships too. It's, it's more difficult to get yourself to, to be in a relationship of someone who accepts you and that's open to be with you knowing that you're transgendered. And so that brings a lot of other issues along with it. So, you, you know, you would be lucky to find someone not lucky. I've always had people and, and ex-boyfriends that have always supported me and have been with me and introduced me to their parents and family and stuff like that. But it always does bring you these issues, especially because I was born and raised in, in Harlem and I, I stayed there for a, bi- a big part of my life. So even p- people around my neighborhood knew that I was who I was in the past. So that was difficult for me, very difficult. Yeah, that was, my, that was my next question because the people, you talk about the new people that you meet, that's one thing. But then the kind of the old people that you knew as a man kind of grieving the, that loss and accepting you as a woman has to be, I mean, that's a huge change for the people who are friends and or, or family who love you. It's a transition for them too. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is a huge transition. It's very difficult for everyone, but I would just like to correct you. I was never a man because I was only 15, so I don't think my age really got to manhood. Yeah, <laughs> that's but true. I think that, um, yeah, it's very, it was very difficult for me to um, 
still live in my neighborhood because people would constantly harass me, but then people would constantly defend me. What was ironic is that when I made my change, the people in my neighborhood supported me more, but it was when they moved out or they were, um, things, uh, you know, time passed, other different people moved there, and that's when I started getting harassed, and my boyfriends were getting harassed, and it was very difficult for me, so it is very difficult. If so I when they, oh, and, there, and harassing you, because this is what this is important. That's why, obviously, like it's important for you. I think, and we thank you for speaking out because I think people um, really do need to hear your story. I mean, it's so ugly and, and mean to harass people for what they are. That's and I. Well, what did they do? I mean, the bullying and the harassment, and how did they get away with it? Or did oh they? wow, people. I mean, I've almost been killed like three times. Probably more than that, and it's been from harass from harassment and from people. You know, what they have literally like um, beat me up. I've had to go to you know to the police and arrest these people. Have some of them arrested, and you know, so I've been through a lot. It's not have been easy, and people look at me and think that it's you know it's like been so easy because I have a supportive family, I have a, a good career, I have you know. Uh, support, I've had supportive boyfriends and stuff, but no, I always used to get harassed, always, always, and I'm passable and people, but the thing is that I'm passable, but the thing is when I was raised, where I was raised, you're not passable, they know who you are, so that was the issue I had, but for the most part, it was okay, it was good, but I, I didn't want to leave because I felt like if I left, they would win, and then I finally just moved, but you know, it was really, it was very difficult, yeah. And, yes, I was bullied and harassed, and I was beat up, and I was, I've had uh, guns uh, pointed to me, uh, you know, so it was very, very difficult. In what kind of context that people do that? I mean, people, is this would be at a bar, people drink too much, or do they, are they overzealous, what they can, they consider themselves religious people, or who, you know, like, who See, I grew are up in a, in a, in a rough neighborhood. I grew up in Harlem. So that had something to do with it, because these people, a lot of the people there were very close-minded, and... I didn't. I I would hate to say it, but it was true because when I would walk down the street, people would literally harass me all the time. So I, I mean, I'm not lying. I'm not making this up. This is a fact. So, right. yeah. What were you saying before? I'm sorry. No. So I'm saying. Okay. So part of it was where you lived. I mean, and it was a rough neighborhood, a difficult uh, group of people. So, but and you were going to stay because you weren't going to be driven out. But then at some point, you decided, okay, I'm leaving. And are you in Manhattan now? Yes, I live in Midtown Manhattan. And don't and how how what is that a different situation? I mean, a different in terms of being harassed. Yeah, no, I don't get harassed at all, at all. I mean, I'm I'm saying I used to live in Harlem. I used to get harassed, but it was not an everyday thing. It was like uh, you know once in once in a while, but that once in a while would be very very strong and would be very powerful and it would affect me. But I always felt like I'm not. I'm not going to let these people win, but because I always felt like I was kind of like this activist or like this person. And every time people would harass me, I would go up to them and give them a whole lecture and they would apologize. And, and I would talk to them and I would say, you know, what you're doing is wrong. How, how do you, what do you think gives you the right to treat me like this and to judge me? And then what, what was really funny about it is that a lot of these people who judged me threw the Bible in my face. 
You know, like you, you're going to go to hell. You know, um, God doesn't love you. Uh, doesn't like, doesn't love faggots. Doesn't love this and that. And I would say, so you're 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 on the corner here. You're in the street judging me, and you are selling drugs or doing all your criminal activity. But you're here preaching the word of God. That's what I would say. Because well, it was like. You know, I came up from a rough neighborhood, but it wasn't only in rough neighborhoods. It would be in, in nice neighborhoods, too. And then police, the police department would harass you if they knew you were transgender, too. Oh, that's a, so it's institution. You know, they talk about institutionalized racism. It's the same thing, institutionalized when it comes, you know, uh, against um, transgendered individuals. That's, difficult. that's really tough to go up against. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, so what would you say to, I mean, you know, to, now, to, to young people, for instance, who are struggling, I mean, you have a certain personality, you're out there, you're obviously, you also, and you've had a good family support system, so it gives you kind of that, I think, an edge in terms of how you feel about yourself, self-esteem, yeah. all of those things. Not everybody has that, but, um you know, there are a lot of younger people who are coming out as transgendered individuals, with you know, beginning with their families. Um, what would you say to them? Well, what I would say to them is that if your family, um, well, for me in my case, I was not thrown out of my house, but if you're thrown out of your house and you have no one in your family who cares about you, find people that will care about you or find a group of friends that feel the same way or go to a counselor, go somewhere where you can get some kind of support because you do need some kind of support. You need friends. You need to, to be around people that are experiencing the same thing that you are or you need to get out of the area that you're in. I mean, but young people don't have the money to move or anything, but if you have, like, a family member or if you have friends that you can stay with or whatever, just try to find some kind of support system. And, you know, just remember that not only transgendered people go through evil things in this world or gay people. A lot of people go through bad things. You know, racism has been a big issue in this country for years. It's not only gay people. It's been for black people. It's been for people of color. It's been for uh, people that are poor, you know, like classism. It's been for people that, you know, it's, it's, it's for a whole bunch. It's the whole... But this world right now is chaotic. Yeah. I think you the world know? has always been chaotic. <laughs> the world has always been chaotic. You're right, you know. But now I think everyone gets to see it faster because of the Internet and the media and the way that people can, you know, uh, see the news so quickly. That's what makes it more dramatic now. But it's always been dramatic. But, you yeah. know, find some support system and, you know, and... And you can have, have access to support strong. systems, and I don't know if you have any specific websites that one could go to, but, I mean, you can do it online as well. Let's say, I mean, you are a young person, you can't move, um, and if you haven't been you know, kicked out of your house, hopefully you haven't, but there's still support you can get on the net, for instance, isn't there? I, You know, I'm not too sure about that, but there, there, I'm sure there has to be um, some gay and lesbian organizations that will give support to young teens. I remember there was one uh, here in New York City, the Hetrick Martin Institute and the Harvey Milk School. They had a support system there. I'm sure they still do here in New York City. Well, we're in Albany, New York, and there is the Pride Center, uh, which is the longest ongoing Pride Center in the country. I think they started in 1970-something, 
beginning of the 70s, um, and that Pride Center uh, provides support for transgendered um, young people. Okay, well, that's yeah. good. Yeah, well, uh, places like that would be a good um, source for, like, support. Can I go back and ask you, I mean, going through the process has to be a pretty, did you ever feel it like a scary process? I mean, you're actually taking hormones, obviously very strong hormones. You have a sex change operation. Uh, I mean, you're doing some pretty heavy-duty stuff and, you know, um, making uh, irrevocable. No, I'm not a sex change. I'm pre You're not? Okay. No, no. All right, so you did, well, I'm glad I clarified that then. You went through um, hormones yeah, hormones. Um, I decided not to get one because I don't want I don't want a sex change as of now. I don't know what in the future. I don't know how I'll feel in the future, but for now, I don't want that. That's another thing that people probably has a mis- have a misconception about yes. transgender people that they want to get sex changes. That's not true. But actually, the m- minority have sex changes. Okay, give me, and why? And yes, I think that's true. I think um, most people or many people are in the dark about that, including myself, because, I mean, we haven't really, you know, as a society, we have not talked about transgendered, which is what we're doing today. So, like, the question is, what would be, what are the pros and the cons, or why wouldn't one? Because, you know, I would be thinking, well, I'm taking my hormones, you know, I, I think I would want to go all the way, literally, with, and be a woman, um, you know, anatomically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people think like that, but in reality, it's uh, is up to the individual. Like myself, I'm very comfortable being transgendered and preoperative. I actually love myself and my the way that I am. Now, other transgendered women, and it makes more sense for for people to understand the fact that you could change and then you want a sex change. That's I, I understand that, and a lot of girls are getting their. I mean, a lot of girls do get their sex changes and their surgeries, but there's a lot that don't want it. And like me, I can have mine now, but I I prefer not to. I mean, maybe in the future I might want to do that, but for now, I don't. So everybody, you have to understand that everyone is different. There's not going to be a set line for anyone's sexuality, gender, or or even race, really. Especially with Latin Americans, we're all of mixed cultures. Everyone is different. Everyone thinks differently. Everyone is their own creation. So that's how I view myself. I am very comfortable not being a a post-op because I embrace myself for who I am. Not that they don't embrace themselves. I'm just saying that I embrace myself for who I am and what I am now. And I'm very comfortable with it. The day that I decide that I want to do it is the day that I feel uncomfortable being this way, but I really don't, I really don't think so. Like, I really enjoy me being who I am. There's a lot of neg- negatives to, you know, to everything in the world, but there's also a lot of positives. And I look at everything for, for both, and I like to, I like to um, focus more on the positives. Well, you definitely do that, Giselle, and we have to, we only have a, 30 seconds left, really, but um, I, I really, I thank you for sharing your story. I mean, I think it's really helpful to people to hear, you, you know, to hear your story. And, uh, yeah, I'll because be, yeah. That's, that's very important. Um, yeah. What do you want to leave anyone um, with? 
Well, 30 seconds, I think maybe you left them what, you know, it's your, you, you've really, I think, told your story in a very positive way, and we really appreciate it. Um, Giselle Alicia Extravaganza, and um, thanks for being on the show today. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show. I'm your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zock Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.